Hi. Hi. I'm Adam Morton. I have been doing stuff for Mockingbird for a while now. I'm tempted to say 2015 is when I started. So it feels like it feels like a little bit. I've spoken at several of these conferences and uh, organized a Mockingbird conference for pastors, which was supposed to repeat in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I'm a pastor. Uh, and then COVID came and knocked out the second year of it and the third year of it. And this July, I'm moving to England, so it's not happening. Um, so it was a nice idea. We had one small conference. It was a lot of fun. But uh, in addition to being a pastor, I am also a, uh, I guess, a PhD candidate. Um, I'll be finishing that up this summer. I submitted my dissertation, whatever. It has nothing whatsoever to do with this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give you that kind of thing. <laughs> This is different sort of material. You might ask why I'm showing you a picture of Nikita Khrushchev right now, besides the fact that maybe all of us have Russia on the brain and that's probably it. And so I've spent much too much time of late thinking about modern Russian history. And if I'm honest with myself, uh, and my wife can attest to this, I'm a little bit obsessive about Ukraine military news. <laughs> like, in excruciating detail. Not going to be talking about that either. This is actually something much longer in Genesis than that. Uh, so we've all been hearing about, not just hearing about, experiencing, I mean hearing about like it's out there, but it's not. It's a living experience. Maybe 10 years ago we were hearing about it. The talk is of political, social, cultural polarization culture war stuff, but bigger than I think old-fashioned culture war stuff for those of us who grew up with bits of it in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, to things having progressed to a, a, a little more significant point. There's a lot of books on this. I mean, there's a lot of books on this. I have not read them all. I have actually read only a few. They're, they get repetitive. Uh, they're even, you see multiple books with literally the same title. Some of these are older than others. The upper right one, Solutions to Political Polarization in America, I believe was published in 2013. Which is to say that political scientists have been on this problem a lot longer than, you know, Trump and all of that stuff. Uh, they were already, already noticing this issue probably significantly more than 10 years ago, which is a broad trend line in American politics where the space between the parties was opening up but alongside that, it's not just political parties. Colors on maps, you know, the, the usual conventions, and it wasn't always red and blue, but eventually that became the convention, were of course, they, they, they represented political parties, but political parties aren't necessarily a personal identity. Maybe for some of us they have been, but they're not all the time. But they have become to the point where you can talk about states, regions, almost cultural differentiation. You go to a blue or a red church, Totally nonsensical question 25 years ago. Every one of us knows exactly what it means now. I have a six-year-old boy sitting in the back of the room. He loves reading books. And when he reads children's books, you know, we, we, we look around for good children's literature for him. Uh, stuff that's age-appropriate, but that's also fun, that's interesting. And then I go to places that sell children's books. And I'm struck, no matter kind of which kind of place I look at, by the sheer amount of recently published children's literature, which seems to exist mostly to affirm the social and political choices of the parents. Yeah. It's not about literary merit. It's not actually about whether it's a fun story. But it does tell you whether this is going to be a junior Democrat or a junior Republican. When I was a kid, that was a joke. I remember very clearly a Family Ties episode. Now I'm dating myself. <laughs> In which Alex Keaton buys his little brother, who was then coloring book age, a Republican hero's coloring book. So in the mid-late 1980s, that was a joke. That was a laugh line. That's normal today. <laughs> but it's not just the United States. This has been observed as a worldwide phenomenon, and it's also been observed as a basic psychological phenomenon. So there's a lot of these books, they get repetitive. Uh, there are some of them, I think, that are much better than others. Uh, 
Both these are terrific books. Uh, you may be more familiar with, with Jonathan Haidt here, um, The Righteous Mind, if you're not. Wonderful book, but he's got this uh, the, the, the moral foundations theory. It's a psychological explanation in part for our kind of polarization. And he makes a basic distinction between people that he calls weird, that's an acronym, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, people in those societies, and people in more traditional societies. And in his psychological theory, he's saying the various axes of morality, people in weird societies tend to only recognize a couple of them. People in more traditional societies tend to prioritize all five, or I think it might be up to six, moral foundations, these various axes, uh, more equally. Okay, so that's, that's his theory. It's, it's useful as a psychological theory. Uh, Martin Gurry is a former uh, CIA analyst, wrote a terrific book, really interesting. It's mostly about the technological roots of this stuff because it's something he saw coming as a media analyst for the CIA years ago. This, this book came out in 2013, and it reads as absolutely prophetic. Just because he started seeing it not just in the United States, but worldwide, what the effect of having a smartphone in your hand was on our social divisions. I like these explanations. I think they're useful. But I think there's something they fundamentally leave out. Uh, we will get to Jonathan Haidt and his biases and presumptions later, but just to point out, he's an atheist. He's an atheist and a psychologist who then wants there to be a psychological explanation. He's not wrong, there is. I think if we look beyond this, there's a theological explanation. I think there's an answer deep in the human heart, and it's also something we can trace in the history of Western theology, and Christian theology in particular, that's emerging in particular ways. That doesn't describe everything the world over, but I think it's very, very important. So what I'm going to actually going to be talking about today is two different visions of the law. And these two different visions of the law are, are they're not just different views of what specific things are right and what specific things are wrong. That would be a little easier to overcome, though still a problem. They're fundamentally different views that have emerged in the modern world as far as what the law is and how it works. They're mechanically quite different from one another. Uh, and if we look at that, we can, I think, start to get to the, the theological center of our polarization. Because it has to do with what's in our hearts, what the basic beliefs of people are. I guess one of my theses is if you look at how people view the law, you can actually tell an awful lot about their basic beliefs about the world. And maybe about God. Uh, now, that's saying something. Um, because a whole lot of people, one of the things characteristic of our society is not everybody says they believe in God or they say they're unsure. So I'm going to say something weird, maybe especially for Mockingbird. That doesn't matter very much. I'm dead serious about that. The last thing I'm actually interested in hearing from somebody is what on the surface they say their religious beliefs are. Because their beliefs about the world are going to bubble up in some very different ways. And whether or not they're comfortable using the word God or not, they've got a proxy for it. Mm. And that proxy is usually bound up with their view of the law. Yeah. Now, so we can step back to an earlier, uh, an earlier America. This, this, this comic strip that I just became familiar with the other day, apparently this thing called um, This Godless Communism was a comic strip that ran in a publication that was in a lot of, I think, pretty conservative American parochial schools uh, from the late 50s into the 70s. But oddly, we have here a panel that has the major players and sort of the machinations that went on right after the death of Joseph Stalin, I think it's in 52, and sort of their, their movements back and forth as far as who was going to rise to the top in the Soviet hierarchy. I'm interested in the title, first of all, this godless communism. That was the language, godless communism. What differentiated America from the communists? They don't believe in God. So we put in God we trust all over our money, and we added under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. This was a major division point. It's, by the way, then, they made a movie uh, several years back called The Death of Stalin. If you haven't seen that, 
that is a terrific film. You have to have an appetite for incredibly dark humor. There are some juxtapositions in there that are tragic, that are terrifying, and yet are also uproariously funny. Um, Steve Buscemi plays Nikita Khrushchev. And I mean, these are all, this, all the people in that photo, basically the people here. They did a good job of the likenesses, right? Khrushchev is an interesting figure because he was, a, he was quite outward and emotionally expressive as a Soviet premier, a political operator. Uh, and yet there was, some, there was some other stuff going on there. I'm inclined to say he was really a true believer. I don't mean in the God of Abraham. He was definitely an atheist. There's a great scene in the film where Stalin's funeral has been planned and somebody has, and, and Khrushchev has been charged with planning it. And then guests start arriving and he looks and he realizes there's a parade of Orthodox bishops walking in. He's, who let these boyfriends of Christ in here? <laughs> Almost all the main characters in the film are atheists. There are a few religious characters, and it's very interesting because they seem much more sane than everybody else. <laughs> but Khrushchev was in many ways kind of a zealot. Famous quote gave this uh, in a, 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 an address at the Polish embassy to a bunch of Western diplomatic figures in '56. Right? Absolutely famous quote from uh, from Khrushchev. About the capitalist states, it doesn't depend on you whether or not we exist. If you don't like us, don't accept our invitations, and don't invite us to come to see you. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. At which point, most of the Western diplomats walked out of the room. Now, this was broadly taken at the time as, as not only a threat, but potentially a nuclear threat. And it's not as if Khrushchev was above making nuclear threats. This wasn't actually a nuclear threat. It was something very, very different. This was an expression of faith. It was a very clear expression of faith if you understood the language it came from. And that language is right there in that word history. History is on our side. What kind of an animal is history that it could be on our side or anyone's side? It's a very particular view of the world that says history takes sides. Uh, it's become commonplace, right, to say somebody's on the right side of history. I lost a friend over this once. That actually really happened. Um, it, it's somebody who I had been a friend in high school, then we reconnected on Facebook, and I remember what the discussion was. Yeah, I thought it was totally innocuous, but he said something about somebody being on the right side of history, and it was some issue that was important to him, and I wasn't disagreeing on the issue, but I said, I don't think history has sides. I don't think history itself makes those kinds of judgments. At which point he's like, what about the Nazis? What about Hitler? I was like, well, they can be wrong, but it's not because history shows it. Because what if they'd won? At which point he blocked and unfriended me, and I've heard not a word from him since. I stepped on his god. That's, that's the honest truth. That's what happened in that conversation. That I didn't realize what was happening. Maybe that's the genesis of this particular talk. Um, Khrushchev himself explained this a little while later. These were uh, remarks in Yugoslavia in 63. I once said, we will bury you. And I got into trouble with it. Of course, we will not bury you with a shovel. Your own working class will bury you. In other words, this wasn't a threat that the Soviet Union is going to overrun your lines and conquer you. That might have been an acceptable outcome to him. But it wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying is the West really is, uh, is decadent. It is weak. Capitalism is going to fall because history has a particular character. History is the history of class struggle. And at some point, your own working class is going to show the defects in your system, and they're going to overthrow you. And communism is an inevitability. That was his article of faith. That's what history meant to a good communist. Where does that leave us today? What on earth does that have to do with us today? Well. What I want to say then is we've got two visions of the law. And once you learn to recognize them, they're not hard to pick out. One of them speaks of, so I use the scene of here, Jesus enthroned. 
uh, looking like an emperor. This is a vision of the law as eternal, as unchanging, as essentially vertical in its orientation. This believes in hierarchy. The truth of the world is the unchanging moral law, which is based, if you're religious, on the unchanging law and will of God. Okay? Uh, but even if you're not all that religious, you can still actually believe in this. And we'll get to that. The other one, you look at just even the style of art here, and you can immediately see what kind of a vision of the law this is supposed to be representing. Okay, we've got, we've got something, it screams socialism, revolution. What does that say? What's revolution about? There's something that happened. Um, it happened in uh, started to happen really in about the uh, the beginning of the 19th century. It's a particular moment in the history of the West. And what was born is a. Uh, it, this isn't the first time that a view like this came up, but it's where its particular modern form seems to have. A, sort of gained strength, gained a particular expression that we've all become somewhat familiar with. Here's what characterizes this view of the law. The law isn't eternal and unchanging and hierarchically oriented. The law is instead something that goes on forever in a forward movement in history. It has a direction. It exists in time. It changes in time. It moves through time. It produces new outcomes. This is why you can be on the right side of history. What is actually true can change in this view. This is a progressive view of the law. What seemed right then isn't going to seem right later. So we've got our eternal law thing. Up in the right, top right, you can barely see it. God, family, country. This is this kitschy thing. It could have come from anywhere. I love this one because I got it off of a Catholic marriage prep website. <laughs> I got Thomas Aquinas. I got Mary enthroned. I've got the Kremlin here. It's not that each of these things is necessarily a, a, a pure version of that. In fact, though, this view, the classical articulation of the law as eternal and unchanging, does come to us from Thomas Aquinas. He's not the only person to express this by a long shot, but he is one who says it very, very clearly, something he's usually good for. And what back in the 13th century he said is there is one true eternal law, which is identified very closely with God and God's will. And that eternal law will take on a couple of forms in the world, one of those will be just the law of, of unaided reason, the natural law, which is then embedded in all things. This is the order of all things. <clears throat> the other part of it will be revelation, but these two are in harmony, reason and revelation. At least they ought to be, properly ordered, they ought to be. And then out of that, as a somewhat imperfect uh, substitute, we get human laws. Fully admits that human laws can be problematic. But you can see an ordering here from God's eternity to particular sorts of expressions, then you can imagine, well, if we organize society on these lines, the church should be a clear hierarchy, the government should be a clear hierarchy, everything has its place and has a lane to stay in and a place to be. There's something very attractive. In a world full of change and chaos, this can be a refuge. And it says something true about the world. It has something to say about natural law, about how things, about that there, there is a kind of law baked into reality that isn't always just moving and changing. Of course, you can very clearly see the downsides because it's all the stuff that the communists or the socialists or frankly anybody who's interested even to a small degree in progressive ideas of justice would immediately point to. Well, it's nice you've got your one eternal hierarchy here. What about the people it leaves out? This is very convenient that you have one unchanging order that keeps the same people at the bottom all the time and the same people at the top all the time. Maybe there's something suspect about that. 
Maybe, maybe this isn't absolutely ideal. And come to think of it, you know, we have had massive technological change. We have had social change. Is it actually true that in all ways the law is just this static eternal reality? Is there nothing that really changes? And we get the law in the modern world. So here's a comic about Hegel. I will not read it to you. I find that lame when people do it. Also, there's multiple panels. So I'm just going to give you a chance to kind of read it as I talk, as you need. But the guy on the left is uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Great, great German philosopher. Um, probably thought he was greater than he really was. Something important you should realize about Hegel. He didn't start his life wanting to be the great philosopher. He went to school in Tübingen to become a Lutheran pastor, basically. He studied theology. Had some famous roommates, too. Um, it's important to realize he studied theology because there's something innately theological about his philosophy. But Hegel, as a young man, while he's in school, is hearing the news of the French Revolution, something he thought was incredibly important. One of the sort of unchanging orders of reality, the throne of France, it's now changing. The world is undergoing tremendous upheaval. And some years later, he's teaching in Jena, in the city of Jena in Germany, the university there. And when he's teaching in Jena, there's, of course, there's been warfare going on. Um, and that warfare was between fellow who came out of the French Revolution, rose to the top, the Emperor Napoleon, and, well, basically everybody else in Europe. <laughs> Napoleon had this problem of, I'll just fight everybody until we win, which turns out not to have worked. <laughs> but at the time, he was ascendant. And one day, Hegel observes Napoleon, victorious, and actually doing reconnaissance for his own army, riding into the city of Jena. And this strikes him as a historical moment, as history itself on the move. And he starts thinking about the nature of history and time and what is true. And mind you, he'd read his Bible and he'd studied theology and he realizes, wait, there's movement there. There's change. It's not just one static eternal order described in scripture. There's, some, there, there's stuff that actually does change. There's a development here. And so he starts to think about history in a different way as, as spirit realizing itself in time, something becoming, something new coming on the scene. That's what Napoleon represents to him. The world is fundamentally changing. So here you can have an actual order in which See, where are we? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> there is a punchline here. <laughs> um, there, there are maybe problems with Hegel, too. Right. <laughs> Understand, however, that even if you didn't agree with Hegel, you ended up responding to him. Marx didn't agree with Hegel. He doesn't like his idealism. He wants a more material outcome here. And so it's not the sort of self-realization of spirit through history. No, it's, it's history is the history of class struggle, this clash of material forces. But what's going to lead to is, in either of these cases, it's something related to Christian eschatology, something related to Christian teaching about not just the end of the world, but the kingdom of God. For Hegel, that looks one way in God's self-realization in history. For Marx, it looks another. I don't need God for this. Why does Marx need not need God for this? Because he's got history itself. A what's basically a material God. So we say history is on our side, or we're on the right side of history. Khrushchev says history because history is going to make a judgment. Now, on account of these two views, that means the modern world is conflicted. It's conflicted at a very basic level. I don't mean Marx and Hegel as the two views. I mean any of this progressive, like sort of the, the eternity of the law turns sideways. The realization here is the law doesn't need to be eternal, unchanging. 
It needs to be infinite, to keep going on and responding to new circumstances. It's a really clever innovation. It's also got its problems. We live in a time where people can hold a perfectly acceptable view that was viewed as moral five years ago, or two years ago, or ten minutes ago, and suddenly people say, you know, that's actually been wrong. The real moral view is this. You're now on the wrong side of history. One of the things when you're talking about the law is people tend to have a hope in the law. They have a faith that it's going to bless them. We have a confidence that if you believe in an eternal law, you have a confidence if you order your life to it, if you do the things that law says, if you think, that means obeying my government, obeying my church, getting married, having the right number of kids, obeying the rules, then I will be blessed in a certain way. Likewise, if you're a, an inherent to a more progressive view of the law, then you say, where blessing comes from, where freedom comes from, is keeping up with that movement of history. You're in the constant movement of repenting of what you were 10 minutes ago in order to become whatever things are now. And if, you're not, if you find yourself unable to make that move that everybody else is making, then you're on the wrong side. You're left in the dustbin of history. That's what Khrushchev meant by, we will bury you. In a way, he's saying, you're going to bury yourselves. We say this to people all the time on the internet, in social life. Look how retrograde you've become. We also make excuses for it, right? Think how odd it is, historically speaking, that we live in a time where we expect younger people to have fundamentally different views from their parents. For long stretches of humanity, human history, that was not the case. But now, sure. Or, you know, a very sweet old lady at church suddenly in the earshot of her pastor, says something just incredibly racist. This happens. This happens all the time. And if I'm her pastor, I'm going to say, you know, Gladys was born in the 20s. Um, it was a different time then. She may not be on the right side of history, but I'm still using that framework to kind of explain her actions. Uh, But it's this odd idea that people's morals can not only be wrong, they could be out of date. <laughs> the morality could go out of date. At least the morality we used to have. Uh, and we all share in this to some extent. There's all, for all of us, there's stuff that we feel works that way. Uh, we also end up with concocting slurs to call each other for some people, somebody who is more on one side or the other of these two views of the law. If I would pull you all in this room, if I got to know each one of you, every one of you falls more on one side of this line than the other. Probably there are a few of you who are absolute purists on either end. We do have a tendency to mix them some, but we also find the places where they're at odds. And we all lean one way or the other. I don't think you can avoid it. It's just what it is. But one of these is at this point broadly identified with the left. It's more complicated than that. It's true. One is broadly identified with the right. It's more complicated than that. But it's true. And if you are the sort who believes in an eternal law and therefore in hierarchy and order, the standard political slur, if you lean that way, is to say, well, this person's an authoritarian. Now, they might actually be an authoritarian. Those are not mutually exclusive. The accusation might be right. But it also might be a slur. Likewise, we can say somebody, oh, they're just woke, they're just progressive, I mean, they're way over on the other side. Uh, and you might even say, well, then they're a threat to morality, or this. We'd say, oh, those people, they're, they're antinomian, that is, they, they're, they're against the concept of law, they're amoral, they're, they're, they're nihilists. It's not true. They're not nihilists. They're people who sincerely believe that good and right develops and changes in time. That might be a problematic view, or it might be one you identify with. It shows up in all sorts of other ways. It shows up in how we describe um, American history. This has been a thing, right? So I'll describe these 
groups in terms of two teams. Team 1776 identifies America and its, its truth with the Founding Fathers. That's, that is, the truth of America and its value sits at the beginning. There's another group, I'll call them Team 1619, I'm sure you can understand, <laughs> who will locate the truth of America. They'll say there's something important that happened back then, but it's a wound, it's a defect, it's an original sin. Mm. The truth of America is at the end. It's what we could become. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's where the real goodness would lie. In other words, for one of these, you can look back to the founding and say that's where good is, similar to looking up to eternity. For the other, you have to look forward to find good because there's nothing but wrong in the past. Shows up every time we try to uh, nominate a Supreme Court justice, right? And all of a sudden, the news is filled with descriptions of two different kinds of legal philosophies. There are many more legal philosophies than this. But there are two things that are going to jump out at you because they correspond very closely to these views of the law. One is so-called originalism, right? The meaning of the law is found in its original meaning. The other, you call legal pragmatism or, 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 or sometimes a living constitution. In other words, it changes with time and circumstance. This duplicates itself again and again and again, and we find these things opposed to each other. So who's right? That's what you want to know, right? Who's right? How do we resolve this? <laughs> Here's the funny thing. They're both in the Bible. They're both in the Bible. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We have lots of scenes in the Psalms of God enthroned, of the universe seeming ordered and organized around him, of hierarchy and moral order as good. Malachi 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Our salvation is dependent on the fact that God doesn't change. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you've turned aside from my statutes. Sounds like they stay the same, doesn't it? and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, my first talk I ever gave at Mockingbird was on um, time travel in the Bible, which was a weird topic, but it actually comes together with this. Because I said there are two different models of time travel, and I described really two conceptions of time in Scripture. One of them basically cyclical and mythic. I don't mean untrue. I just mean it exists in a different frame. And one linear that is that's divided into before and afters that are decisive. For example, the cross of Jesus. But this idea of linear time emerges in the Hebrew prophets. And it's an incredibly important development in human history. Uh, often the Greeks are called... You have, you have, the notion is that the study of history emerged in ancient Greece, right? So you have Herodotus as the father of history, you have Thucydides and Peloponnesian War. I don't want to undercount the importance of these writings, of this literary movement. However, I actually do think there's been something seriously undercounted here, which is that our modern view of history as marked by decisive moments of change, of periodizations where they're really not the same, of what was is not the same as what will be, but there's a direction to it that doesn't actually originate from the Greeks. It originates from the Hebrew prophets. Because the Hebrew prophets are the ones, the first ones in all of human history who started to speak about this crazy notion of the day of the Lord. There's a day coming where things are going to change and they will not be the same as they were before. And this funny word starts creeping into the language of the prophets one after another after another and the word is new. I'm going to do a new thing, says the Lord. What on earth? How can the eternal God do a new thing? How could we see a new thing? That's a nutty idea. Appreciate the madness of that idea. It's a beautiful idea, but it's crazy. Doesn't Ecclesiastes say, well, there's nothing new under the sun? That's not what Isaiah says. The haughty, well, he says, maybe not yet, but it will be. Watch this. The haughty eyes of the people shall be brought low, and the pride of everyone shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high. And in Isaiah 43, 
Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is going to do a new thing. There is going to be a change. And what will be will not be what was before. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant they made with their parents. Though I was their husband, says the Lord. There's something here. They're both in the Bible. <laughs> what on earth are we going to do with that? Now, there are some differences. But it, it, we, we have to recognize then, this is... This is not something we can just overcome by saying, oh, well, we're, we're scriptural, and they're not. It doesn't work that easily. With, with, with the prophets and the God of Israel, the root of our problem is going to be with the law. Both of these sides have a point, right? Uh, Views of the law are going to go right along with our view of God. If we emphasize God's majesty, his eternity, his unchanging nature, we get an unchanging eternal law. If we emphasize the coming historical judgment, the call to justice, the, uh, the toppling of the mighty from their thrones and lifting up of their lowly, you can understand why Marx, though an atheist, was actually drawing on the Christian tradition. If you emphasize those things, one can come around to the view of the law as historical and infinite. Both of them are theological, not just among people who say they believe in God. If you end up really believing in an eternal order, I don't care whether you tell me you're a theist or not. I can find you plenty of atheists who aren't, don't work like that. Um, Explicit belief in God doesn't matter as much as we think. I don't think it matters for nothing. Actually, I think it matters a great deal, but not necessarily in this way. This is one reason why traditional religious belief and some of our messaging seems to be in steep decline. This is, this is part of my perception of this, is that we're not necessarily accounting for where people's faith really is resting, what they actually believe about the world. Here's a phenomenon we ought to take note of. The left wing of American politics is not uniformly anti-religious at all. Uh, the, the, the young woman, uh, the representative from Queens in the Tax the Rich dress, has politics extremely similar to the uh, Jewish atheist from uh, Brooklyn by way of Vermont. Isn't that startling? She's a practicing Catholic. He's an atheist. I could point to members of their club who are Muslims, too. What's going on? Well, they all have the same view of the law. The fact that she's a practicing Catholic isn't actually differentiating her politics from, from Sanders at all. On the right, you can actually see the same thing. Something I noticed years ago, because I realized that while many, many, many rank-and-file Republicans tend to be somewhat religious, uh, in sort of the intellectual class, uh, a lot of your most prominent writers and theorists were atheists. I thought, well, that's funny. But I read, I read, you know, I would read George Will, or I'd look at something by Charles Krauthammer, um, and they'd have a basically static, basically eternal law kind of view going on. These days, you get somebody like Jordan Peterson, really interesting example, super interesting example. He's clearly talking about order and the law, right? Ordering your own life so you can get in line with how the world really is. He's doing it this, through a particular in, interpretation of Jungian psychology. That's where he comes from. Peterson's basically an agnostic. He's moved around on his view of Christianity. He isn't hostile to the idea of God at all. But as you listen to how he talks about it as a psychologist, you realize for him what's fundamental is the behavior, the rules of moral order, and out of that, if God becomes a helpful sort of symbolic thing, that is, for Peterson, it doesn't matter whether the actual law is coming down from God or whether God is projected up through our ideas of the law and moral order. To him, those are almost indistinguishable. It doesn't make any difference. Well, isn't that 
weird then? Shouldn't we take notice of the fact that within these views, whether you say there's a God or not, it doesn't matter very much. This is a very strange figure who has been helpful to my thinking on this matter. You're not familiar with him. <laughs> if you are, good for you, really. Uh, Lev Shestov was a Russian-born uh, Jewish extraction, but not a practicing family uh, philosopher. He was mixed in with many of the major Russian intellectual figures of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And his personal history is uh, its very mixed. But there's a story there of profound despair and real tragedy. Uh, involving such things as an illegitimate son he had a conflicted relationship with, and then that son's untimely death. And sometime around about 1914, Lev Shestov, who has worked up until that point, had very much been inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche. So it was, I mean, it's, it's probably more nihilistic than Nietzsche. It really is. Early Shestov, and early, really, until late middle age for him. I mean, 1914, he was, he was almost 50 years old, is dark. And it's hard. What it has in common is he's got a skepticism, really, that there almost is any fundamental rational order to the world. He's fighting this. He wants to find freedom, but he can't. He'd actually like there to be a God, but he can't. He starts reading Luther in about 1914. Starts reading Martin Luther, of all things. He's never baptized. I don't know that he ever has anything to do with the church, but his writing changes profoundly. And suddenly, he starts saying things that sound absolutely nuts to the philosophical world. And mind you, though, he's obscure today. He was not obscure in Russian philosophy up at that time. Uh, some of the major German philosophers knew him very well. Uh, when he uh, fled to Paris in the, in the 20s, uh, they gave him a chair in Russian philosophy at the Sorbonne. He wasn't a nobody. But in his late works, he starts talking about how he says basically all of the philosophers. And here he's lumping in Hegel with Thomas Aquinas. He says really they're both rationalists. And what he says by rational, when he starts talking about rationalism and rationalists, he's talking about the law. And what he says about, about them is they're wedded to this idea of sort of an eternal must, of the necessity of the law, whether it changes in history or whether it comes straight down from heaven. It's this necessity you need to bow the knee to. It's the nature of the law as command. And he says, if you actually want to know the truth and you actually want to do real philosophy, you should hear the Hebrew prophets and the Gospels. And yes, he does say the Gospels. It's astonishing. I can't figure out what was going on with this man. I mean, I can. God was. But, but really astonishing. Because he looks at the resurrection of Jesus and he says, here is a moment. First of all, it's a moment of decisive change but in a very particular way. Because what the law says is what has happened, what's already been set down, that's in stone. There's nothing you can do about that. He looks at the resurrection of Jesus and says, here we have something different. What it means is that what has been will not have been. Think about that grammatical construction, will not have been. <laughs> that's a more fundamental change coming than anything Hegel ever dreamed of. The God who seeks and obtains the protection of the principle of non-contradiction, there is an eternal law, is certainly not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ancients would have been amazed if they had read in the Bible that the Son of Man proclaims himself master of the Sabbath. No man who can call himself master of the law. This is worse than Protagoras' statement that man is the measure of all things. It's the destruction of the eternal and immutable order of the universe. He knows what the law is. God always demands of us the impossible. That's what the law is. It's a demand. Now we're coming to something of the truth about the law in its two forms. They both come from the Bible, don't they? To a certain extent, to that extent, they're both true. These are actually how God's law is working among us in two different ways that seem at right angles to each other. Why is that so important? It means it's going to crush us. There's no way out. But we read in Isaiah that God doesn't ask what must be according to the nature of things. The whole world knows the famous words, the wolf and the lamb shall feed side by side, and the lion will eat straw 
from the bullet. The law only multiplies the crimes. So what is the law? This is what we need to get to. This is our way out. What is the law? Jesus talks about this. I'm going to go quickly through this because I've got a long time. Jesus clearly says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. You're not going to get rid of them. That's very important, by the way. Because what happens in our modern conflict over the law, this death match we're stuck in, is our tendency, when we feel too threatened by one view of the law, is we flip to the other one and say, ah, but that one wasn't true. Right? If I grow up in an, in an environment that I come to feel is oppressive, that emphasizes this hierarchy and order, something that's a straitjacket I can't break out of, it can feel for a while like good news, like liberty, like real freedom. If I say, no, the law changes in time, now I'm free. I can ignore all that hierarchy stuff. If I'm feeling oppressed by not being able to keep up with the changes in the world, I'm a 90-year-old woman who was raised in a fairly racist society. I'm trying my best, and some words slipped out of my mouth that I didn't actually mean to say, and now people are saying horrible things about me, and I don't know what to do about it. I might well say, what I need is an unchanging world, an escape from this flux, an eternal moral order. <clears throat> I'm not going to get too much into Jesus is here. There's, there's an interesting thing. If you want to play a game here, go to what Jesus' words in Matthew 5 about divorce and then trace them back to Deuteronomy 24, which is what he's actually quoting from. But you'll see he's quoting from a law that doesn't quite say, it's not that Jesus misquotes it, he quotes it perfectly right. But the argument in Deuteronomy 24 is not exactly what Jesus is talking about. Deuteronomy 24 weirdly seems to presuppose a law that you can't find in Scripture because it talks obliquely about giving somebody a bill of divorce. So you look back through the rest of the scriptures for the law that says how you divorce somebody in the bill of divorce, and you won't find it. You can go all the way back to Exodus 20, where you get, you shall not commit adultery, sort of a foundational law on marriage, but there's nothing about divorce. There's nothing about how we're getting there. There's this weird development happening, happening internally. This is the most important thing. What we finally discover is this. God is not the law. I can't tell you how many theologians, how many biblical scholars have missed this point, and I don't understand it. They will very rarely explicitly say God is the law, but they'll identify them so closely you could never, ever pull them apart. It's true. The law, in all of its forms, is God's. But it's not God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, so unless your righteousness exceeds that of people who had actual legal righteousness, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. What is that? Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there's risen no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What is Jesus talking about until John? What's after the law? That's crazy. What's after the law? The law, indeed, was given through Moses. Here it is as clear as day. The law was given through Moses by God. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, which means the law is not grace. The law is not truth in the sense that Christ is. And Christ is not the law. And he never will be. Paul says it this way. He uses a very interesting piece of language. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone, came in glory. Oh, the law has a glory. Maybe multiple forms of it. So that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside. How much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? The ministry of death is where we're at. This is the point we get to. Because <laughs> it's going to eat us. That's true. It serves a purpose until then. Both of these forms of law actually serve a purpose, but it's not to bless us. It's not to give us freedom. We cannot get that from the law. We are killed in particular ways. And we have to know that. We have to recognize that. And if we recognize that the law isn't God, then we can make a certain peace with it. It doesn't mean it's not going to eat us, but we know that's going to happen. There's something that comes after that. There is an after the law. 
I think an interesting figure for understanding how or what a relationship to the law should maybe be is Batman. Uh, Batman is always a conflicted figure, you see. Because Batman can't ever, as much as he's sort of an embodiment of the law, he's kind of a hero, as much as you have the Jim Gordon thing and the bat signal thing and he seems to be helping the good guys, he's a vigilante. He's outside the law and he's necessarily outside the law, even when he's trying to uphold the law. Can't get around it. And there's a conceit that goes in, in the world of Batman that makes him viewable as a hero. He's in the new one. How many of you have seen the new Batman? A few of you. It's dark, but it's good Batman. And he's got this line, it's even in the trailer, he says, I am vengeance. But that's not what God says. God does say vengeance is mine. But God's not vengeance. But Batman is vengeance. And the problem with that is the conceit has to be that there are these people out there, the innocents, who could never be harmed by Batman. That's the only thing that makes him a hero. There's a wonderful scene in the new Batman film, it's near the beginning of the movie, where there's a guy who's getting assaulted on and off a subway by a bunch of thugs in clown makeup. You can see where this kind of thing is going. I am vengeance comes in, that's actually where he says it, pounds the crap out of these dudes, and then you see the man they threatened lying on the subway floor, cowering, begging Batman not to do the same thing to him. And the film, to its credit, cuts away before Batman can explain that he's not that. There's this terror, because how is the guy supposed to know that the same isn't going to happen to him? But our hope, our faith, is not in the ministry of death. It's not in either view of the law. To ask which one is right is to ask which one will bless me. And they won't. It doesn't mean we're not going to make pragmatic decisions here and we're not going to trust scripture on the law. We are. But you're not going to get blood from that stone. The blood comes from Jesus Christ. And what he has for you is not vengeance. It's not the ministry of, the, of death. It's not the law. He has the forgiveness of sins, and only that forevermore. That's who he is. That's who God actually is eternally. The new thing is the forgiveness of sins. It is the gospel. And by the way, God's unchanging nature is his faithfulness to the gospel. That's the good news. Thank you.